Hello everybody and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast episode number 240. Today's big Bible question is, how do we put on Christ? So hello friends, happy Lord's Day to you. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As I sit here typing this article and recording this podcast, I am eagerly awaiting a delivery of a 3M respirator so I can go outside and do some activities. Our air quality here in Salinas is very dangerous right now due to the fires, so we've all been staying indoors. Uh, It's been crazy. I mean, you know, we're already kind of still sheltering in place, but now you can't go for walks outside. You can't really do much of anything because the fires that are burning all around us have our air quality in ridiculous numbers. I mean, this is the worst air quality in the world right now, I understand. And Salinas is usually in the top 10 best air quality in the United States of America. So quite a role reversal there. So pray for us, pray for each other. Because of the fires, our church is online only this Sunday. We're not going to be able to meet outside and we're going to meet uh, online at the VBC Salinas page on Facebook at 11 a.m. I'd love it if you joined us. That's VBC Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas. I apologize for those of you that watched last week. Our service was outdoors in 91 degree weather, which is hot for Salinas, and our iPad and Mevo camera overheated, which ended up causing terrible audio issues. Well, hopefully none of that happens this Sunday. Our Bible readings for today include 1 Samuel 15, Jeremiah 52, Psalms 31, and Romans 13. Now, our focus for the day could be on whether or not Christians should obey the government, because that's a big important part of Romans 13, but I just covered that on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I got a link in the show notes at BibleReadingPodcast.com. That was episode number 202. And also, just this week on a video podcast with my friends Michael and Sam, the Drawing Lines podcast, and you can find that on my Facebook profile page, facebook.com slash Chase A. Thompson. Just look me up and you'll be able to find that episode. We call it the Drawing Lines podcast, and it soon will be a podcast, but right now it's just a Facebook live show. So I'll let you guys know when you can subscribe to that feed if you're interested in it. But we had about an hour-long discussion on what the Bible says about obeying the government. Well, that's not our focus today, but our focus passage is Romans 13, and it's a chapter that's broken into three different sections. Part one is about how a Christian should interact with and submit to the government. Part two is about love is our primary duty as Christians. And part three is about this whole idea of putting on Christ, which I will admit is a strange expression, I guess. We think of putting on clothes, of putting on a hat, putting on gloves, putting on a disguise, putting on armor or a uniform or something like that. But the idea of putting on a person and especially putting on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is kind of a strange idea. So let's go read Romans 13. It's a very short chapter. And then we will discuss what exactly is going on here. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. 
for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we can pretty easily wrap our minds around the idea of putting on the armor of light, explained on a deeper level by Paul in Ephesians 6. Uh, But the idea of putting on Christ is a little less straightforward. Interestingly, this is not the only place in the Bible where we are told to put on God in some way. I first think of Jesus' admonition and charge to the disciples in the Great Commission of Luke 24:49, where he says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now we realize in Acts 1 and 2 that the Holy Spirit is the one that will come on the disciples and clothe them with power from on high. Now there's one other passage that I'm familiar with that actually speaks of putting on Christ in the same way that Romans 13 does. And it's Galatians 3, which says in Galatians 3.27, For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So what does it mean to have put on Christ or to be clothed with Christ? Well, I think Paul kind of begins to unpack that idea in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3. So let's read Colossians 3, verse 12 through 16 first, where Paul says, Therefore, As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And then Ephesians 4, 22-24 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So I think what we see here is that putting on Christ involves a taking off of the old man that was crucified with Christ and a putting on of the new, renewed man that was raised to life with Christ. Now, I love the colorful way that Charles Spurgeon teaches on this topic, so let's turn the ending of this episode over to him yet again. Spurgeon says, The apostle does not so much say, Take up the Lord Jesus Christ and bear him with you, but he says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and thus wear him as the garment of your life. 
Now a man may take up his staff for his journey or a sword for a battle, but he lays those down again after a while. But you and I are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ as you put on your garment, and thus he is to cover you and to become a part and parcel of your outward appearance, surrounding your very self as a visible part of your manifest personality. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This we do when we believe in him. Then we put on the Lord Jesus Christ as our robe of righteousness. It's a beautiful picture of what faith does. Faith finds ourselves naked in its shame. Faith sees that Christ Jesus is the robe of righteousness provided for our need. And faith, the command of the gospel, appropriates him and gets the benefit of him for it. By faith, the soul covers her weakness with his strength, her sin with his atonement, her folly with his wisdom, her failure with his triumphs, her death with his life, her wanderings with his constancy. By faith, I say, the soul hides itself within Jesus till Jesus only is seen and the man is seen in him. We take not only his righteousness as being imputed to us, but we take himself to be really ours. And so his righteousness becomes ours as a matter of fact. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. His righteousness is set to our account and becomes ours because he is ours. I, though long unrighteous in myself, believe in the testimony of God concerning his son Jesus Christ, and I am then accounted righteous, even as it is written, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. The riches of God in Christ Jesus become mine as I take the Lord Jesus Christ to be everything to me. But you see, the text does not distinctly refer to this great matter, for the apostle is not referring to the imputed righteousness of Christ. The text stands in connection with precepts concerning matters of everyday practical life, and to these it has to refer. It's not justification that Paul's talking about, but sanctification that we have here. Moreover, we cannot be said to be put put on the imputed righteousness of Christ after we've believed, for that is upon us as soon as we believe, and it doesn't need to be put on again. The command before us is given to us who have the given righteousness of Christ, who are justified, who are accepted in Christ Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ is a word to you that are saved by Jesus and justified already by his righteousness. You and I are to put on Christ and keep on putting him in the sanctifying of your lives unto God. You are every day continually more and more to wear as the dress of your lives the character of your Lord. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, for the night will soon be over, the morning will soon dawn. The rags of sin, the sordid robes of worldliness are not fit attire for the heavenly morning. Let's dress for the sun rising. Let's go forth to meet the dawn with garments of light on us. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is coming. The beloved of our souls, over the hills we hear the trumpet sounding. The heralds are crying aloud. The bridegroom comes. The bridegroom comes. Therefore, he has seemed to, though he has seemed to tarry, he has been always coming post haste. Today, we hear his chariot wheels in the distance. Nearer and nearer is his advent. Let us not sleep as do others. Blessed are they who will be ready for the wedding when the bridegroom comes. What is that wedding dress that shall make us ready? Nothing can make us more fit to meet Christ and to be with him in his glory than for us to put on Christ today. If I wear Christ as my dress, I do great honor to Christ as my bridegroom. If I take him for my glory and my beauty while I am here, I may be sure that he will be all that and more to me in eternity. If I take pleasure in Jesus here, Jesus will take pleasure in me when he shall meet me in the air 
and take me up to dwell with himself forever. Put on the wedding dress, ye beloved of the Lord. Put on the wedding dress, you brides of the Lamb, and put it on at once. For behold, he comes. Hurry, hurry, you slumbering virgins. Rise and trim your lamps. Put on your robes and be ready to behold his glory and take part in it. O ye souls, go forth to meet him with joy and gladness. Go forth wearing himself as your gorgeous apparel, fit for the daughters and sons of a king. The Lord bless you for Christ's sake. Amen. And amen indeed. Let us put on Christ. First Samuel chapter 15 verse 1. Samuel told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul summoned the troops and counted them at Talem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set up an ambush in the wadi. He warned the Kenites, since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. Get away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel. Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep and goats and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. 
Now therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel returned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the Eternal One of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship to the Lord your God. Then Samuel went back, following Saul, and Saul bowed down to the Lord. Samuel said, Bring me a gag of Amalek. A gag came to him trembling, and he thought, Certainly the bitterness of death has come. Samuel declared, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. Then he hacked a gag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul, king over Israel. Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Lipna. Zedekiah did was was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done. Because of the Lord's anger, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. They laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it all around. The city was under siege until Zedekiah's eleventh year. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that the common people had no food. Then the city was broken into and all the warriors fled. They left the city at night by way of the city gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Chaldeans surrounded the city. They made their way along the route to the Arabah. The Chaldean army pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah's entire army left him and scattered. The Chaldeans seized the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. At Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes, and he also slaughtered the Judean commanders. Then he blinded Zedekiah and bound him with bronze chains. The king of Babylon brought Zedekiah to Babylon, where he kept him in custody until his dying day. On the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, entered Jerusalem as the representative of the king of Babylon. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down all the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, deported some of the poorest of the people as well as the rest of the people who remained in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers. Now the Chaldeans broke into pieces the bronze pillars for the Lord's temple and the water carts and the bronze basin that were in the Lord's temple, and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. They also took the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling basins, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The captain of the guards took away the bowls, fire pans, sprinkling basins, pots, lampstands, pans, and drink offering bowls, whatever was gold or silver. As for the two pillars, the one basin with the twelve bronze oxen under it, and the water carts that King Solomon had made for the Lord's temple, 
The weight of the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. One pillar was 27 feet tall, had a circumference of 18 feet, was hollow, four fingers thick, and had a bronze capital on top of it. One capital encircled by bronze grating and pomegranates stood seven and a half feet high. The second pillar was the same with pomegranates. Each capital had 96 pomegranates all around it. All the pomegranates around the grating numbered 100. The captain of the guards also took away Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest of the second rank, and the three doorkeepers. From the city, he took a court official who had been appointed over the warriors, seven trusted royal aides found in the city, the secretary of the commander of the army who enlisted the people of the land for military duty, and sixty men from the common people who were found within the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. The king of Babylon put them to death at Riblah in the hand of Hamath, so in the land of Hamath. So Judah went into exile from its land. These are the people Nebuchadnezzar deported in the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In his eighteenth year, 832 people from Jerusalem. In Nebuchadnezzar's twenty-third year, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, deported 745 Jews. Altogether, 4,600 people were, were deported. On the twenty-fifth day of the twelfth month of the thirty-seventh year of the exile of Judas King Jehoiachin, King Evel Merodach of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, pardoned King Jehoiachin of Judah and released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes, and he dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death for the rest of his life. Psalm chapter 31 verse 1 Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You've redeemed me, Lord God of truth. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love because you've seen my affliction. You know the troubles of my soul and have not handed me over to the enemy. You have set my feet in a spacious place. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration. My whole being is well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am ridiculed by all my adversaries and even by my neighbors. I am dreaded by my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street run from me. I am forgotten, gone from memory, like a dead person, like broken pottery. I have heard the gossip of many terror is on every side. When they conspired against me, they plotted to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. The course of my life is in your power. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me by your faithful love. Lord, do not let me be disgraced when I call on you. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them be quiet in shale. Let lying lips that speak arrogantly against the righteous in proud contempt be silent. How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. In the presence of everyone, you have acted for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter from human schemes, from quarrelsome tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his faithful love to me. 
in a city under siege. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful ones. The Lord protects the loyal, but fully repays the arrogant. Be strong and let your heart be courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless you, friends. May he shine his light on you and guide you into safety and good places. Good day and Godspeed.